The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Father, as we open the text and look at it, Our hearts do grieve for these families, and especially we lift up Dan and Lindy and their family, the Bacon family, to you. And Father, as our attention now turns to the Savior, we pray that we might fully grasp and understand as much as we can about the nature of the one who was sent. In Christ's name, amen. We've been doing a series this Christmas entitled Sent, and in that series we've been looking at uh, the one who was sent. You can see it in front of you, see it on the banner, see it in various places around the auditorium and building. Basically, the first week, Stephen looked at the authority of the one who was sent. Last week, we studied uh, what if he had not been sent, and this week we're going to look at the nature of the one who was sent. The nature of the one who was sent. Sometimes when you give a gift, especially at Christmas time, it might need some explanation. If you don't give the explanation, it could be a problem. Uh, the following video is in German. So how many of you speak German out there, understand German? Let me see. I hope it's not an insult. I, I don't know what it says, actually, but I uh, hope there are no bad words or anything like that. Uh, but I think you'll get the point. This is, if you give a gift to the older generation, you probably need to explain what that gift is. Okay? So here's a young lady who gave her elderly father an iPad for Christmas. Should have given him an explanation of what it is. Here we go. Sag mal, Papa, habe ich dich noch gar nicht gefragt. Wie kommst du denn eigentlich mit dem neuen iPad zurecht, was wir dir zum Geburtstag geschenkt haben? Gut. Mit den ganzen Apps kommst du klar? Was denn für Apps? Geh mal bitte ein Stück zur Seite. No need for translation there, right? I had a hundred people after a sermon. I thought, pretty good sermon, actually. A hundred people came and said, where'd you get that video clip from? That's all they listened to heard the whole sermon. But uh, as we look at it, we recognize sometimes gifts need explanations. Here's the good news. The gift of the Messiah came with a lot of explanations. The gift of the Savior came with a lot of explanations. In fact, when we look at the Gospels, we see in every Gospel account except for Mark an explanation of the birth of Christ. And Mark's Gospel does not record it because Mark's emphasis upon Christ as servant and his servant's beginnings, his roots, and his ancestry don't matter. So Mark does not deal with the birth of the Savior, but Matthew, Luke, and John do. And as we look at their explanation of the gift and we recognize who he is, it's important to have that explanation. Perhaps one of the greatest explanations and one of the greatest presentations of the birth announcement is found in Philippians chapter 2. It's not a typical Christmas passage, but it really deals with the Savior. You see, it says he was found in appearance, verse 8, as a man. One minute he is surrounded by the glory of heaven, the next he's occupying the womb of a young Jewish girl. 
One minute he's being worshipped by angels. The next moment he's surrounded by barnyard animals in a sinful world. And as we look at what our Savior did when he was funneled through, uh, the, the, when he was funneled down to our planet, we recognize that he was unlike anyone who ever came. In fact, what was the nature? That's the question this morning. What was the nature of Jesus? What was the nature of the one who was sent? And in this very rich Christological passage, a very rich passage that deals with the theology of Christ, what we find is an explanation of not only him coming, but especially an explanation of his nature. Who was he and what was he like? This passage is one, first and foremost, about a Savior who was fully God, fully man, who had a nature unlike anyone's nature, who had attributes unlike any man's attributes. So we look at the nature of the one who was sent. He came as an example. If you look at the context, it says in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, what is this attitude? It refers to the previous four verses. Paul is writing, and he says specifically in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. Have this attitude. The attitude is an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of selflessness. And so Paul is writing in the first four verses, this is the context of Philippians 2, and he says, I want you to have this attitude of humility, this attitude of selflessness. And then Paul says, let me give you an example of that. And he didn't have to do a Google search to find an example. He knew who the epitome of humility and the epitome of selflessness was. And it was Jesus. And so he moves from saying, I I want you to have this attitude by saying, let me give you an example of this attitude. And he says, have this attitude in yourselves that was also found in Christ Jesus. So he uses Jesus as an example of humility and selflessness. I love the way that the message is a paraphrase by a guy named Eugene Peterson came out about 10 years ago. A few years ago, I read through, I read through the Bible every year, and a few years ago, read through the message. It was quite interesting. It's a paraphrase, not a translation. I love what he does at this passage. Here's Peterson's trans, or paraphrase of Philippians 2, 5 and following. Think of yourselves this way, or think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. But didn't, so much, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, death by crucifixion. As Peterson paraphrases that section, he tells us he had had status with God, but didn't think of himself in such a way to cling to the advantages of that status. And what we see is when we look at Philippians chapter 2, is that Christ is a great example of humility. And the first thing we see in his nature is he laid aside his status. He laid aside the status of who he was. As Peterson says in that paraphrase, he, he laid who he was aside. If you look at verse 6, it says, he, he, he Have this attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed. Existed is an interesting word in the language, the Greek language is what the New Testament is written in. And in this particular verse, it refers to something that was true then and is true now. It refers to a previous state that continues to exist. 
And so Paul is saying in his previous estate, he was God. And when Paul writes, he says he is God. In a moment, we're going to see Paul saying he always will be God. His nature has not changed. His nature is unchanged. He existed past tense, before the incarnation. He existed as God. He is God now. He continues to exist as God. And he always will be God. That has not changed. He existed this way. This is who he is. It denotes the continuation of a previous state. The previous state was being God in the past, and now he is God in the present, and he will always be God. Scriptures go on in verse 6, and it says he existed in the form of God. Some people stumble on the word form there. They say, you say, well, he really wasn't God. He was just a form of God. He, He was just something like God. And they might say, well, he became deity, he became God at his birth, or he became God at his baptism, but he was not always God, he was just a form of. Well, that's a misunderstanding of that particular word. It's an interesting word, it's the word morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E, morphe. We get metamorphosis, we get something that morphs into something else from that word. And what Paul is saying, he's existed in this morphe, he's existed in this form, he always has, he always will, and he is currently in this particular state. When my son was little, uh, this would go back way back, uh, this is an old school transformer. It's an old school transformer. That's not what they look like today, is it? I mean, that's not at all what they look like now. They've got these superhero deals. And and the way this worked, when Daniel was a young boy, this is one of the very, how many of you guys in your 20s or early 30s had, you know, one of the first transformers out there? Yeah. You're old enough to be my son, actually, is what that means. Uh, this is what it morphed into. It morphed, the same word that's used there. It morphed from this truck into this robot or whatever that thing might be over there. Now they're really cool. Go online, Google up Transformers. It's amazing what happens out there. Some of your kids get them for Christmas. Some of you want them for Christmas. Some of you have had them. But here's the reality. When this thing, when this truck morphed into that robot, did it essentially change? Of course not. I mean, it looks different, but it's still plastic. That's the same concept. When Jesus came to earth, he was still God. He just morphed into not a robot, but into a man. And the word morph there, not the same way that we would use it, but his nature never changed. He was God. He is God. He will always be God. The elements, the nature of that particular piece of plastic didn't change the way it looked and what it did change, and that's what happened in the Godhead. Jesus came down as man, he became man, and he became one of us. His nature never changed. He is God, always has been God, and always will be God. That's why Jesus could say in John chapter 14, he could say that, or I'm sorry, John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And that's why he could say in John chapter 16, he who has seen me has seen whom? The Father. You see, because they were one and the same, he always has been, always will be, has not changed. In fact, when you go to John's prologue in the Gospel of John, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. If he was in the beginning with God, he preexisted, he always has been, and we know from the prologue of John that the Word was Jesus himself. The Logos, the Word, was Jesus. The Word was God. Jesus always has been, always will be, and currently is God. His nature has not, cannot, will not change. In fact, C.S. Lewis in one of his books writes this. He says, there's confusion. There's no confusion about who Jesus is. The religious leaders may debate. 
the crowds may be divided, but the forces of evil can identify and not deny who he is. Religious leaders debate, people debate, but the demons of hell know. In James chapter 2 it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons of hell themselves know who Jesus is. He always has been God, he always will be God, and he currently is God. His nature is unchanging. It never, ever changes. The demons believe and they shudder. And if you look at the end of verse 6, it says, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't understand who he was. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what it does mean is that in his deity, he laid aside some of his divine prerogatives and rights. Without ceasing to be God, without ceasing to be deity, he selflessly and humbly laid aside and submitted to the Father his divine rights and his prerogatives. He laid aside his status. I love the way that Peterson says that in the message. He laid aside his status. In our day and age, status is an idol. It's an idol. We want status. We, we, we idolize status. We want to live in the right neighborhood. We want to wear the right brand of clothes. We want to uh, drive the right model of car. Uh, we talk about the schools that we attend. We, we want airline status. Don't you want airline status? I mean, you, you watch those people that get, to, get on the airplane early, those access prior, priority access folks, and you just kind of, hmm, 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 hmm. We want status. I read this week, I Googled up status. You know one of the first things that popped up? American Express Platinum Card. Pretty interesting. You know anything about American Express Platinum Card? It's quite interesting. Some of you have them. I'm sure if you have an American Express Platinum Card, it costs you 450 bucks a year to have one of those puppies. And it says, the American Platinum Card makes luxury practical, offering perks that are difficult to pass up. You get to uh, access airport lounges uh, domestically as well as internationally. You receive $200 in airline incidentals credited to offset fees and other extras. You become a gold uh, elite status Starwood preferred guest. You get concierge service. You get special offers at hotels, discounts. But then it ends like this. You'll get a big bang for your bucks, all 450 of them. Status. You whip that puppy out, and if you've got one, I don't mind traveling with you if you want to take me along because I don't have one. We can enter those lounges, get those little crackers and cookies, and uh, they're all free because you paid 450 You can take one guest with you, so invite me along. <laughs> Status. If it's a credit card, an airline, a house, the clothes, we like our status. The schools we attended. Isn't that amazing? In our family, we don't talk about that. My son, he's at Stanford. He couldn't get into LSU. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Status. Status. Jesus laid aside his status. He is the epitome of humility and selflessness. When we look at our Savior, what we see, what we see is one who came humbly, our planet. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves that existed in Christ Jesus. We need to have, we need to develop, we need to develop a different type of theology. 
I mean, let's face it, we are mostly prideful. The scriptures say pride comes before the what? Before the fall. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the, to the humble. And so you look at that and you realize oftentimes that's the way we are. We, are, we wrestle with pride. We wrestle with pride. Chuck Swindoll writes, he says, My grandson, when he was four, was visiting us. He looked at me and said, Grandpa, you know how you and God are both alike? And Swindell says, I begin to polish off my halo. And I said, no, how are we alike? He said, Grandpa, you're both old. <laughs> Pride comes before the fall. Mark Twain said, anytime you think you have influence, try ordering around someone else's dog or your own cat pretty good example. We need to develop what I call dog theology instead of cat theology. Okay? Hey, here's how a cat thinks. You feed me, you care for me, you give me shelter, provide for all my needs, I must be wonderful. Okay? That's another reason I don't like cats right there, that right there. Okay? But dog theology, that's the way we need to be. It says this. You feed me, you care for me, you give me shelter, provide for my needs, you must be wonderful. You know, there's some truth to that in there. What we go through life and we think because we've been given all this stuff, I must be somebody. When the reality of it, he is somebody. And so we lift him up. We glorify him. We honor him. We magnify him. Because he is the one who laid aside his status to humbly come to our planet in the greatest epitome or the the epitome of selflessness. Not only did he come humbly, he was one who had a servant's heart. He had the heart of a servant. When you talk about the nature of the one who was sent, what you see is the heart of a servant. If you look at verse 7, it says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and was made in the likeness of men. Now, now, this is called the kenosis passage, because the word emptied is the Greek word kenosis. What did he empty himself of? I mean, to continue to be God, he couldn't lay aside the attributes of God. So what did he empty himself of? What did he lay aside? I mean, when, when Peterson wrote this, he said, when time came, he set aside the privileges of deity. What did he set aside? What did he set aside? Well, he set aside a number of things. One of the things he set aside was his glory. If Christ came in all of his glory, like at the time of transfiguration, everything was hit the ground all the time in his presence wherever he went. There's a little scene in the garden just before Christ is crucified and his glory is revealed and all the soldiers are knocked over. His glory. In fact, it's quite interesting. In John 17, some of you recognize that passage, Jesus is praying. It's the true Lord's Prayer. I mean, the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, that was Christ teaching the disciples how to pray. That's the disciples' prayer. Jot down John 17, take a look at it later. That's the Lord's Prayer. That's him praying. And in John 17, verse 5, he laid aside his glory. That's my point. Here's what he says in that prayer. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had, past tense, with you before the world was. Jesus veiled his glory so he might be seen by man. So he emptied himself. He veiled his glory. What else did he set aside? He set aside his independent divine authority. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus says, I come to do what? The will of the Father. He didn't say, I come to do my will. I come to do the will of the Father. 
In fact, in this prayer in the garden, he prays, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He not only veiled his glory, he laid aside his divine, his independent divine authority. He laid aside his eternal riches. He was surrounded by angels worshiping him in heaven, and he laid aside the eternal riches of heaven. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For your sake he became poor. How did he become poor? He laid aside the eternal riches of heaven. And finally, he emptied himself. He laid aside a face-to-face relationship with the Father. He laid aside a face-to-face relationship with the Father. In eternity past, he's with the Father, but he comes to earth as a man, and he lays aside that face-to-face relationship, and not only did he lay that relationship aside, but ultimately he was forsaken by the Father. The moment that Jesus bore the sins of the world, your sin and my sin, the Father turned his back on him because he couldn't look upon sin. And it's at that moment that Jesus cries out from the cross those words that ricochet from star to star in the heavenlies. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Christ lays aside his glory, his independent divine authority, his eternal riches. And he lays aside his face-to-face fellowship with the Father. To do what? To become a bondservant. If you look at the verse that the verse we're looking at, verse 7, it says that he became a bondservant. He became a bondservant. A bondservant is one who's been set free but chooses to serve anyway. A bondservant owned nothing. His master owned everything. I remind you that when Christ came to the end of his life, he had, to, he had to borrow a room for his men to have the last supper in. He had to borrow a donkey for him to enter Jerusalem in. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. He came as a bondservant to own nothing. And a bondservant also carried the burdens of others, carried the burdens of their master. I remind you that Christ carried the greatest burden that no one else could carry, and that was the burden of sin. And so when you look into the manger, what you see is a baby who is humble. What you see is a baby who laid aside his status. You see a baby who had the heart of a shepherd. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, I come not to, not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom to the many. He came to live this selfless life. He came to live the life of a servant. It's not about us. In Charles Schultz's cartoon, Linus says, I think there's something you need to know. What's that, Lucy? He says, the world does not revolve around you. She thinks about it and says, you're kidding. That's the way we live life, isn't it? Thinking the world revolves around us. Max Licato, in one of his books, says, We humans want things our way. Forget the easy way, the common way, the best way. Forget God's way. We want things done our way. John Ortberg, in one of his books, tells a story of heading to McDonald's with his five-year-old. He said, we're headed to McDonald's, we're on the street where McDonald's is, and we notice up ahead of us, and somewhere close to McDonald's, we can see the lights of the police cars. And he said, whenever we see the emergency vehicle in our family, we pray for the people that might be involved. And he said, before I could say it, my five-year-old in the back seat chimed in and said, Dad, I'll pray. And he put his head down, earnestly said, please, God, don't let those cars be blocking the entrance to McDonald's. That's how we are, isn't it? It starts when we're young, and it continues through life. Selfishness rather than selflessness. And as Paul writes here, he says, the nature of the one who has been sent 
is a life of humility, the life of a bondservant, the life of one who would give his all for everyone. Finally, he gave his life in sacrificial obedience. When you stop and look into that manger, you not only see one who laid aside his status and had the heart of a servant, but you see one who gave his life in sacrifice for others. Those others would be us. The ultimate humiliation of our Savior was that he was killed. God visited our planet, and we killed him. That's the cold, harsh reality of Jesus' life. He came to our planet as God in the flesh, and we crucified him. God's birth brought God to man, but it took God's death to bring man to God. Let me repeat that. C.S. Lewis said it first. God's birth brought God to man, but it took Christ's death, God's death, to bring man to God. You see, when you look at the blood that's being shed, when you look at the spear that's piercing his side, when you look at the nail-scored hands, when you look at the sign above him, it's all for you. Every bit of it is for you. And so when you look into the manger, what you see is one whose nature was to lay aside a status. One whose nature was to have the heart of a servant. One whose nature was to live a sacrificial, obedient life. The good news is this. It didn't stop there. The good news is this. One day he'll be exalted. When you look at the rest of that passage, it's like a panorama. It's like a panorama. Paul moves from his pre-existence to his current status, to his coming to our planet, and then he looks to the future. And he says, I want you to know, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Amen and amen. He'll be exalted. He'll be honored. When he comes back, he'll come back as king. But when he came this first time, he came in humility as our king. Do you know him that way? Rest well, tiny hands. You look in the manger and see those tiny hands. Rest well. Because they will never hold a scepter. They'll never touch a crown. Those tiny hands will touch a leper and a blind man and eventually be stapled to a tree. Rest well, tiny feet. You won't walk up to a throne. You won't climb the stairs of a palace. You'll be stapled to a tree for me. And rest well, beating heart. Because it's about to be pierced. It's about to bleed on our behalf. Rest well, sweet baby. For your journey on our planet... Your journey in our planet will be a difficult one because you're going to come and we're going to cast you aside and we're even going to have a holiday without inviting you, the guest of honor. Rest well, humble king. You who came and whose nature was fully God and fully man whose nature was to lay aside status,
whose very nature, whose very nature was to be sacrificed obediently, whose very nature was to be a humble servant. Father, we are grateful for this one who came, Christ our Savior. As we draw back and look into the manger, we're grateful for the example, but more than the example and more than the exaltation one day is the hope and offer of salvation today. If you're here today and you're not sure that Jesus is your Savior, this could be the greatest Christmas holiday you ever celebrate. The reason that baby came was so that he could die on your behalf. God's birth brought him to us, but his death can bring us to him. If you accepted him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sin, if you haven't, I pray that you will, even right now. And maybe you know the Savior, but you're far from the Savior. Maybe you know the Savior, but you're ashamed of the things you're involved in because you know they don't reflect a life lived for the Savior. Maybe you know the Savior, but you haven't spent time in his presence lately. You make this morning a morning of confession. We look back on the Savior's coming. When he came, the nation of Israel was looking for one who would come. They were looking for a king as well, but they were not looking for a humble king. They were certainly not looking for a king who would be a bondservant. They were looking for a king who would be a political leader. There's a great old hymn of the faith that says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. He came to give his life as a ransom came to offer himself. But they weren't looking for someone with his nature. They weren't looking for someone with the nature of humility, the nature of a servant, the nature of one who would die. They were looking for a political king, and they missed him. And that's the great tragedy of that first Christmas. As they looked, they didn't find him.
Father, we do rejoice. We rejoice that Emmanuel has come. And how I pray that no one here would miss his coming as they did in that first century. But we would look and see his humility and look and see his obedience and look and see the one who came with a servant's heart to give his life on our behalf. We pray that in Jesus' name.